Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. So this is our last episode of season five. We really appreciate you guys joining us. So what we're doing with this episode is we're taking the highlights from the entire season. So whether you're just joining us or you've been with us and want to go back and review some of those highlights, this is your chance. So now get ready for the season five finale of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Episode 53, Max Power in Rotational Sports with Dr. Greg Rose. There's lots of research studies out there that'll show you this. If you take a group of people, like let's say you take 60 couch potatoes, right? And you biopsy them and you look at their fast twitch to slow twitch ratios. And let's say these, these couch potatoes have 10% fast twitch. If you get them off the couch and you say, go strength train for a month, heavy strength training. You know, a long time we used to, we weren't sure if you could actually change your fast twitch percentages versus slow twitch. For power, you want more fast twitch. If they were 10% fast twitch and you put them on a strength training program for one month, and then you re-biopsied them, mm-hmm. and you looked at the average, we now know you can change that. You can influence the amount of fast switch to slow switch. The bad news is after that one month of strength training, the average goes from 10% to 3%, right? It goes down. <laughs> strength training reduces your fast switch. So you would say, like, why would I ever do strength training if it's going to reduce my fast switch? Well, the same research will say if you take those, those people after one month and say, stop working out, stop doing strength training, Right. They can, they can go back to their sport, do more ballistic type of stuff, or they can even just get back on the couch, right? And we say, let's test your biopsy of your muscles every month. Within three months, the average person doesn't go back to 10%. They go back to 20%. They double. It's called a rebound effect. So this, this rebound effect is how we can influence power by periodizing when we do strength training versus doing power. So she was actually getting the slow twitch increase during the strength and now I'm going, perfect, let's rebound this, let's, let's stop doing some of that, go to more explosive stuff, maintain your movements, and in a month or two, you're probably going to be out driving your, your longest drive yet, right? So that just makes sure. All right, so what I hear you also saying here is to youth baseball, tennis, golf coaches, strength training your kids three weeks before the season doesn't really do anything but make them a little slow and tired. And if the kids aren't strength training in their legitimate off season, then we well, really now, don't now have. <laughs> well, now you just open up a can of worms because. Yeah. But let's let's let I'll talk golf and we can talk baseball. Uh, what's the off season in golf, right? So here's the the problem with most sports <laughs> now is they eliminate the off season, right? So when you say to somebody, okay, when's a good time to reduce my fast switch? The answer is never, right? Like, like we have four weeks on the PGA Tour that we have off, right? So it's a joke, right? So and this, I'm, this, isn't, this is a much bigger conversation than talking about problems with junior sports, but this is the reality, right? Is as a strength coach, you have to now fit into the world of, well, every tournament matters and there's never a downtime. So you really do have to get really smart about micro-periodization. And when you're doing strength, you can't just do strength on some of these sports like that. We have to time it with the same thing with explosive work so that we don't influence it in a negative way. Or we just agree, all right, we're going to not drive it as far for the next month or two, but it's going to pay off when we get to the Masters in April, right? They're like so, so one of those things. But it's a difficult conversation now in a lot well, of sports. Well, what I've heard you both say, uh, Greg, is – it, you know, you guess you just kind of went to one direction where how complicated it can be. But before yeah. you got to that point, you both were describing a process that you go through, no matter who walks in the door. 
You have Correct. a very, very much a specific process where you do X, Y, Z, and based off that information, you then make a decision on what to do. You're not just going to yeah. go strength, somebody, strength train somebody. You're not just going to power train. So walk us through that process. If you Yeah, well, so Lee, that's a perfect example. Like I told you the field goal kicker was here yesterday, right? Never been here before. And he, he was referred by one of his good friends as a uh, MLB baseball pitcher that I work with. And he comes in, he's like, I've just never been on 3D biomechanics. I'm excited to do it. And I said, that's great, but that's what we're going to do last. Like, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go look at movement, right? So Because it doesn't matter why you're here, right? I think you want us to answer your questions, right? So I always start with saying, like, how can I help you? Like, imagine I'm a genie and you just got three wishes. You know, how can I help you? Now, based on what you say, uh, it would it would steer me in maybe what we're going to do. But I can tell you for sure, no matter what you say, right, here's the things that I'm going to need before I open my mouth. Number one, I'm going to need a medical history. Number two is I need to know how you move. Now, that sounds like, a little thing, but like I told you before, it's everything. Once I understand why you move or how you can move, it helps me understand why you swing that way or kick that way. And if you think about movement, you know, let's say I'm checking external rotation of the shoulder. If I check, a, let's say, a pitcher and they go, okay, I can rotate to 120 degrees, does that mean they can only do 120 degrees? Well, actually, sometimes when you're dynamically striding down a mound and you have momentum, it goes from 120 to 160 degrees, right? So I go, I like to see how you move because it helps me understand what you can and can't do. And then I really want to see what you do in your sport. And that's when we do the biomechanics. So we go in and we look. And what's more important is this is how in my process is if you have a movement problem, let's say in the gym first, like let's say you can't do a, a, a shoulder mobility, right? Again, with dynamic movement in your sport, maybe it doesn't show up. But as you and I both know, a lot of times it does. And if I see the movement problem in your sport creating an efficiency problem on the mound and I match it with a movement problem in the gym, well, now that's a body sport connection. Those body sport connections is what makes my clipboard at the end, right? That's what we attack, right? And it's the same thing if you're a, an accountant, a secretary, or a lawyer. I think it's the same thing that Gray and Lee, you guys are going to do the exact same thing. You're going to look at their movement. You're going to start talking about what do you do in your daily activity. And we're trying to find the link between the two. And it's actually not as hard as it sounds. Episode 54, Fighting Fire with Function with Mike Contreras. I think the, the assumption is that you have to do this, this, and this, right? Like you have to screen exactly this way. You've got to do the correctives exactly this way. And I think what you're touching on, it is more about the philosophy of finding where the problems are separating out because you're talking about a lot of people and i think that's kind of what where we're, we're kind of where i'm trying to head is how do you deal with that large of a group of people and it's not that everybody's got to individualize you got to pull out everybody it's like you get buy-in by making people more aware of their limitations because you're dealing with a lot of type a personalities i would imagine coming into the to the to the fire service that they want to run through the brick wall right they want to go out there and fight they want to go do the thing and yet you have, you're identifying that you can't even stand on this board without almost falling off. Well, they want to know, the next question is, okay, how do I fix this? That awareness that they're almost self-identifying by going through this movement test is going to make it life easier for you when you say, hey, you don't need to be putting weight on your back and lunge until you can stand on this board and do this little thing. When you're training firefighters and you're training them in a skill, a job-specific skill, you have a test to see if they have competency in that dedication of time. But we also allocate time for firefighters to 
get general physical conditioning. What's the test for that? Because now we've got enough data coming from school-age kids and the military to say, if you've got low cardiovascular or cardiorespiratory fitness in a two-mile or a mile-and-a-half run, you got musculoskeletal issues and you don't know it. But when people have a cardio problem and they want to get more resilient cardio, the first thing they do is pick a movement where they can get cardio. And if you've got asymmetries and poor core and stiff ankles and no T-spine mobility whatsoever, your cardio can only get so good because your fatigue is coming from inefficiency, not from a adequate cardiovascular load. So it's a vicious cycle. We see poor cardiovascular fitness and we give somebody a cardiovascular supplement, but they're going to hit a ceiling really quick until they can find one place where their movement doesn't disadvantage them. So the only place they can express their cardio is now in the pool. And unfortunately, you don't have to fight fires there. <laughs> so. No, great. That, that, that's a perfect point because, you know, we have this standardized physical agility test. It, it's a, it's a, a timed, if you, if you made it with under this time, it's pass or fail. So we'd get these people, um, and when you talked about ankles, right, we, we, we'd run them and we'd see these people. And, and, and again, they're highly motivated because they know a job's on the line. So we'd see these people and, and we'd see shin splints really bad. And it's like, why is this group having shin splints? I mean, this was later down the line, but we looked and said, why is this, why are they having this issue? Uh, and we went and we were able to look at, oh, there's something here with the ankle. That, that person, uh, the job is the job, right? And we had done a bunch of testing uh, where we had put people, put heart rate monitors, put them in their turnouts and did a simulated fire. Uh, and we did it for 30 minutes. And then 15 minutes recovery, we tested specific gravity. We looked at their hydration. It, it was not just movement, but it was just really looking at what it was going to take. Um, because at the time, the union was jamming me up saying that our workouts were too tough. And what we showed through the monitoring is that on, on average, our people were at 190 beats a minute. Now, that's relative to age, conditioning. You know, we, we didn't can look at those factors, but we saw is the job is a high demand job. What we have to make sure is that your body is capable of that demand. And once we did that, we had all kinds of people uh, wanting to come and sign up because people don't, they, they just assume their ankles are supposed to hurt that way. Right. Or their sh- you know, why is your shoulder hurt so much when you run? Should it? It really shouldn't. Right. But like you talk about, they're T spot. They're they're just locked up, and so for things like in we lunge a lot when we get down to pick up hose and we get on our bellies. But if you can't lunge in a pair of shorts, what do you think is going to happen when we put sixty pounds of gear on you? Episode fifty-five: Sensory secrets of your hands and feet. The the hand and foot is as far upstream as you can go for kinetic movement information. Now, your eyes are also giving you things, but what your hands and feet feel ultimately determine the pattern that's happening next. If you step on attack, there's a pattern that's coming. And believe it or not, it's a reciprocal pattern. You're going to lift the foot with the tack in it up simultaneously while throwing the other foot down because your brain already knows if I lift both feet, I'm going to land on my ass. So, So there are a lot of patterns that are driven by the sensitivity of your hands and feet. And you mentioned the word homunculus. When we look at the map of the human brain, there is a huge amount of real estate 
dedicated to the face and hands. And believe it or not, even though the foot isn't quite as well represented as the hand, it's more represented the entire leg than it's attached to. So your hands and feet are as upstream as you can go when it comes to sensory information, and they're as downstream as you can go when it comes to the motor representation of the fastball you just threw or the rock you just climbed. So we often talk about hand strength or, or, or good strong feet or something like that, and you even mentioned the minimalist shoe. Let's, let's just go ahead and say it. 150 years ago, every shoe was minimalist. And, and, and we were walking most average humans a few hundred years ago, we're covering six miles a day without a blink. And that's on a regular day, not on a day when you really had to carry water and haul wood. That's on a regular day. And we barely cover that. And that homunculus you mentioned, most people are like, okay, what in the world is that? Hopefully you're maybe Googling it out there. It's just basically a representation of your face, your big old hands and your big old feet, because they are, you know, they are what's connecting us to the world. You know, everything that's going on in your face, you're taking in sensory information with, through your eyes, your nose, your, your, your senses through your ears, your breath, you know, what you're feeling. Then, of course, your hands are connecting to the outside world and your feet are, of course, connected to the body. And over the years, if you mentioned 150 years ago, how much has our foot changed? How much has our hand changed over the last 150 years? I mean, we don't think about that, but it's because of everything we're doing and What's it going to be like another 50 to 100 years from now? Yeah, in, in the last 100 years, the density and size of our mandible, our lower jawbone, has changed just because we don't have to chew food anymore. You run a marathon, you squirt some goo in your mouth, and you keep on going. I mean, you know, everybody's drinking protein shakes, shakes thinking that's like a, a scrambled eggs for breakfast. It's just not. You're paying for processing, not for, for, for product. But the, the thing that, that really was relevant to me in COVID is I'm, I'm a pattern guy. And, and I would much rather lecture to an audience than a camera because I can see the expressions on their face until everybody's wearing a mask. And then all of a sudden, we're deprived from that social feedback of, is everybody getting my joke <laughs> or not, right? Yeah, you, you miss the smiles, you miss the gestures of the face. So our, our face is our sort of social connection to the world. And our hands and feet are our environmental connection to the world. And it's funny because if you wore gloves all the time, it would completely change your dexterity. But it doesn't occur to us that wearing shoes all the time doesn't. And, and the irony was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when people were trying minimalist shoes for the first time and barefoot running, these are people that wouldn't even walk around their house without slippers. Now they're going to do a 5K barefoot, right? and they got a problem. If, if, one, if two pills work, let's take four. Episode 56, Bettering Your Body's Balance with Dr. Phil Plisky. When you can capture a, a really reliable, balanced uh, state of readiness, you can do a lot with that. You can, you can put people in compartments. You can maybe look forward to risk. You can uh, establish a current state of readiness. And uh, so I, I think that I'm very glad that instead of trying to build a different or better movement screen, you simply filled in the gap of the next thing we would check. If We all would say, I think if we did a movement screen on somebody and it was middle of the road and we were still looking for something to work on, I want that balanced signature because outside of the hurdle step, we don't get much. And so that's a bare minimum. And so, you know, it's going from x-ray to MRI, if you ask yeah. me. And, and a lot of times that is what answers the question. 
Yeah, it really does. I mean, I think that's, I, I still remember, you know, Lee, you talk about going into professional sports. We took, uh, you know, just systematizing their performance, systematizing what they do can have such profound impact. And and we took one team from one of the most injured teams in the league to the least injured team in one year, and they sustained that. It wasn't just a, a kind of a off-the-cuff phenomena there that, that, oh, is a blip on the radar. But we did that in one year. The next year, the first question was, what else can we measure? I'm like, why? You know what? You know what? Because <laughs> we like you measuring know what, stuff. <laughs> you know, are, you using, are you using all the data that you're currently measuring? Uh, are you acting on it? And if you're not, don't gather more. Just act on what you already have. The people you're trying to grab are only one-third of the population. It's not, it's not, right? right. So one-third of that population is probably posting the majority of the injuries in that population. So if you can sequester the people with the biggest, most obvious problems, you can change the scope of a season or a factory or a platoon because yeah. you're not just throwing this net hoping you're going to catch something. You already know what the weak links are. And if you can build a user-friendly tool to capture that, now you sequester the people at highest risk and you can actually do something very, very quickly with about 50% of that group. So whether you yeah, have to think 80-20 or grabbing yeah, a third, you taught me that with the YBT. You're like, I don't care what population we're doing balance on, you don't want to be in the bottom third. And dude, that that's you preaching right back to me the the kind of concise simple message that we've been trying to to do you know well if you think about it that's that's exactly that i've i've made a career out of the bottom third right like just identifying the bottom third that's exactly what the functional movement screen does i mean you think about it is zeros and ones what is that it's the bottom third i mean and it it you just never there's nothing in life where you want to be in the bottom third really i mean that's just that's not a goal uh uh in 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 there so uh, that, yeah, that's huge. And, and that, I think people don't even realize that about the functional movement screen. It's not that complex to deal with. It's just get rid of these big problems and then everything else will kind of work out. I think under the term that we call balance is a greater degree of independence when you're older and a higher degree of performance when you're younger. Now, people don't really know what I'm saying, but if you look at one of the major components that's factored in to athletic level reaction time, if balance is pure and responsive and sensitive and accurate and precise to the situation, you have more reaction time success. We can't change your processing time, but we can change the efficiency of the movement time. Balance is truly the connection. It's the link between fundamental movement and performance. And, and I was working with a, with a high school uh, a baseball player, great hard worker, just wants to be faster. And he's you know, not as fast as his peers. And I just work, walked him through functional movement screen. Y balance test and then a fundamental capacity screen where we're doing a lot of of hopping and things like that, a lot of performance uh, uh, tests, baseline performance. And you wouldn't believe the number of parents who can sit there. And I don't really say much. I don't really explain why we're doing what we're doing while we're doing it. And the parents make the connection as they're just watching there. They're, you know, they're like, hey, he doesn't jump as well on the left side as as he does on the right. And his balance was limited, was less on the left side. 
Do you think that's because his ankle was limited there? And I don't even have to say a word because they make that connection. Episode 57, Brain Hacks for Growing Good Posture. Your awareness of your own posture is only going to be brought to you when you're not thinking about it. We all pose and then we all have situations where we adopt that, that authentic posture. If you're not aware of your posture and we get a bad posture situation for you and it's not because of pain, then that's where your fitness must start. And a lot of people just start ad movement and agitating the situation. And for those of us that have probably jogged a little bit in our life, I think one of the quickest transitions, if you want to get back to jogging and you know walking's not enough, is I think walking with a weighted vest is a really quick way to learn about posture. And here's two things. If you've got flexibility problems, that weighted vest is going to feel like quicksand. And if you've got motor control problems, you're actually going to feel better walking just because of the weight. Now, we've got some people that are going to overdo that and put 600 pounds on them. But I think the weighted vest is a pretty good thing because just with a little bit of weight or these yokes that Perform Better has that go around your neck, it is a balanced load front and back. It's not a backpack. And when we're doing this for therapeutic things, you will actually find your uprightness with a little bit more information. And we started our journey really understanding how to fix motor control problems uh, early because we realized in reactive neuromuscular training, if we feed your mistake in a gentle way, you will self-correct. Episode 58, Crafting Good Movement with Youth with Peter Bowler. At the point at which somebody's gym routine is counterproductive to their sport or function, because you can get a quick signature on that, um, I think it's right. And everything you said uh, actually goes into the soup of superior reaction time, because you're talking about elasticity and, and you know fluid movement and the ability to respond in a three-dimensional space and anything that would inhibit your reaction time. We know that when people get injured and they come back at 80%, they're a step slow. That's a completely different athlete. And they don't realize that, you know, you're, you're basically at a significant disadvantage. So having these baselines that we get on you when you're healthy and asking you to achieve those after a training cycle or after rehabilitation is just a proper entry point. And so many people say, well, I feel fine. I think I'm going back. And that may have worked 200 years ago. It doesn't work anymore. There's too many ways to cover up dysfunction and pain. The greatest sportsmen I've ever seen have a unique thing, an aesthetic. It, their, their movement is almost beautiful. Edwin Moses, uh, Muhammad Ali, a chap called Michael Holding was a wonderful bowler in cricket. Um, Roger Federer, the way he moves on a tennis court. And what you're doing is you're seeing a perfect combination of movement and body and uh, training, neurological training, all combining into something. When you watch it, it's like a ballet. And the truth is that the hardest punch that you will ever receive is all down to speed. So somebody says to me, what's the difference between a club cricketer and a professional cricketer and international cricketer? It's levels of speed that go up. It's reaction times that get less and less and less. And your ability to respond to the less time that you have, because the moment you don't have time, your balance gets compromised 
and you're done. I think people hear somebody of your background and wisdom say that, and they immediately Google, what's the best speed package for my eight-year-old? What's the best speed exercises? And I want our listeners to know, that's not what you said. What you said is, anything getting in the way of your speed is what you should be working on. The speed programs are there, and if you're appropriate for that speed development program, but what Lee and I have built an entire career on is saying, oh, you want power? Let's go back and see why that ankle is not contributing to that. And there's a mobility problem or something like that. So I honestly think vetting what could be interfering with your speed from a developmental, a functional level, a energy system level, a symmetry level, you know, reaction time. Look at all the different things that could hurt your speed. And if they're all gone, now you can start working on speed. And I, I want people to hear what you said, because what you said is eloquent. And, and speed does define the ultimate uh, level of the way you're going to get to play. But going right toward the speed packages that the pros use to maintain their speed may not be the program to help you develop your speed. And I, and, and I think a lot of parents and athletes that are aspiring need to hear that because what you actually said earlier is, I developed my base and body awareness in multiple sport environments, even though you were probably more gifted in a couple. Episode 59, Breaking Down and Battling Low Back Pain, with Dr. Kyle Kiesel. Back pain is the number one driver of disability and cost for healthcare perspective around the world. So, um, you know, I think I think you have to have a, 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 an open mind and, and look toward some some new ideas without going down a rabbit hole that's going to get us where where we are really today, which was with um, overdoing diagnosis and and trying to throw technology and imaging at a problem that really uh, very rarely has a has a true imaging finding that we can put our uh, put our hands onto or, or or do something with. So um, you, you got to keep open, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, the the reality of it when you look in the weeds at risk factors, or just look at it from a common sense perspective, you land in the same place. It's it's you got to take care of yourself to a certain level. You got to cover some some very fundamental things of wellness or fitness, whatever term you want to use for that. Uh, and that's your best bet in terms of uh, preventing and managing uh, back pain in the, in the bigger picture. If I haven't had low back pain yet, what are the what are some of those things that tell you within five years it's happening? All I got to do is keep trying to be active or participate in things I love. What what do you see on the horizon for just going ahead and saying this person right now is at greater risk for maybe a low back pain episode than somebody who doesn't have these things? What are they other than pain in the back? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a unicorn. So it hasn't had back pain. So it's, it is really, honestly, very challenging to study because it's hard to find a meaningful group uh, that, that hasn't had an episode. But uh, it, it really goes back to, to fundamentals. I mean, it, as you said, there's the psychosocial piece that has really grown in terms of treatment. Um, and my view, I think it's pendulum swung a little too far. I mean, there's a bio piece that we can't forget about. Um, so if I had to look to say, all right, what am I looking for for someone? Let, let's find success. What's somebody that, that hasn't had a back pain episode? What are they going to look like? They're going to be pretty squared up at home, uh, meaning that they're not going to have major psychosocial components to, to them. They're going to be happy at their workplace and like their boss. Uh, and they're going to have a pretty good BMI. And I guarantee you they're not going to have, you know, if you look at our tools, there's going to be no zeros and no ones on the FMS. 
I'm very confident uh, in that. If you want to say it another way, they're going to have some fundamental movement patterns that they just naturally own. You know, they're not borrowing them. They're not working on them at the gym. They they sort of rolled over, jump out of bed, and touch their toes, um, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and and those that, that's hard. You know, I think it, you know you always go back in time and think about things from an evolutionary perspective. And I I love the way the way you guys do that. Um, but if you think uh, about back in the days when we're uh, hunting and gathering. I mean, we're moving around, we're doing things, we're lifting, our core's engaged, uh, we're not overweight, we're challenging ourselves, breathing, and then relaxing and resting. And so you go through these cycles of stress and recovery that I think flush the system. Um, and, you know, today's society, we just don't get any of that. So. You use the word inhibition. Now, for the first part of my academic life and movement, I didn't know the difference between inhibition and weakness. If I saw a muscle that wasn't doing what I wanted to do, I was going to come up with a recipe of movements or resistance or program to force that muscle into submission and play its role. If you try to facilitate a muscle that's inhibited in the presence of compensation around it, you're just spinning your wheels. You know, people don't get worse, they just don't get better, right? So outer core muscles tighten up to protect and compress the spine. The deep muscle stays inhibited. The longer it stays inhibited, the more it stays inhibited. It's in this loop, right? Right. So you gotta break that cycle. So it's not adding exercise, it's down training. We use the word down training. We gotta knock out trigger points, get people breathing, fix mobility, get them rolling. And then some people just continue that inhibition. Gotta drop a needle, drop a thumb, do something to get that muscle going. And even sometimes we use volitional activation at that point to mm-hmm. try to get the muscle going. And, and, and so it is, it, it's just, it's, it's not strengthening. I mean, it's just not, it's a lot of down training and, and getting people to get back in touch with their core so that that inhibition can be removed long enough to uptake a, a chance at, at normal motor control and the muscle can contract and tell the brain, Oh, Hey, I'm working again. Don't forget about me. Uh, we've got studies, there's three good studies now that show cortical mapping. This is pretty high level stuff, but the area in your brain that represents each muscle in your body can be mapped out. Chronic back pain people, their multifidus and transverse abdominis is in a different place. It actually smudges, is the word that they use, smudges together with the outer core. It all becomes one. The brain can't disassociate outer and inner core. Sometimes there's just so much noise above the muscle so much inhibition, all the psychosocial things we're talking about. The hack is get to the nerve or get into the muscle, get below all that, get the muscle to tell the brain things are okay. And that's an opportunity uh, to, to have a, a, a disinhibition effect, if you will, or hack, whatever word you want for it. If strengthening is going to work with your low back pain, cranky people, it would have already worked by now. So there are some people that have a lot of success just getting a little fitness and then their back pain seems to stay at bay if they avoid some of those very provocative activities. If you're a personal trainer uh, working with client, if you're a strength coach listening, working with an athlete, and the stuff that's gotten other people better isn't working for one, just assume that's not their medicine and maybe not even their diagnosis. And we've got to, we've got to go out. They, they might have to leave this little fitness or athletic goal for two weeks or two months. But the problem is they're not going to be on it much longer anyway. 
looking at their trajectory of how these problems compound each other, once a vital muscle is inhibited and no longer accessible to your conscious or subconscious control. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've heard us talk about the power of the functional movement screen. It can forever change the way you work with athletes and clients. Sign up for our FMS live virtual course and become FMS certified from the comfort of your own home or office. You will be guided by a live instructor through the entire process with the ability to ask our team questions in real time and watch instructors work with live models throughout the day. You'll finish the course with the ability to start implementing the FMS into your own practice. And for a limited time, we'd like to offer our podcast listeners a special discount. Follow the link in the show notes and use promo code VERT22 at checkout for $50 off virtual FMS level one or level two certification courses. That's V-I-R-T-2-2. And if you bundle them at checkout, you'll save an additional $120 automatically. We look forward to you joining us. Now back to the show. Episode 60, The Evolving Landscape for Gyms and Trainers with Chris Poyer. 22% of the health and fitness club closed for good during the pandemic, which is 9,100 club. Yeah. So, you know, during the pandemic, what were you seeing? One, the business you had, what were some of the things you were seeing there? And then what were some of the things, what were the club owners doing during the pandemic to just survive? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, it wasn't even, it, you know, it was, it was 100% of the clubs were closed at first because everything was, was shut down. But, you know, as, you know, as a lot of the trainers needed to continue their business. Because the one, the, the downside with a personal trainer is if they're not training, they're not making money. You know, if you don't have a client, you're not making money. So the first thing was, you know, during the, when the pandemic started was to how do you, you know, how do trainers still make money? How are they still going to stay in business? Um, and and the, the, the easiest thing that, that came about was the online training. You know, it already, there was branches of it already starting out. There were some people that were very successful in it wasn't really popular, you know, but there were, there were, there were outliers that were doing really well with it. But I think once it started, I think everyone had to pivot and everyone had to, had to find a way to how do we keep our, how do we keep our clientele engaged and how do we get them doing something? So the online started, um, which was a really nice way to transition to, you know, now we have two types of training. Now that we've come back, we still have some that have not transitioned out of the online. So we still have a little bit of both. So what we're seeing today is we're still seeing a combination of a little bit of both, a little bit of online, a little bit of live or more live coming back. Um, but yeah, that was, it's, 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 it's been difficult because that, I, I think those numbers are pretty good, pretty accurate because I've heard anywhere from 20 to 30%, depending on who you ask. And, you know, I haven't heard anything less than 20%. But I think now because musculoskeletal health is costing companies and individuals so much money when it comes to insurance. Insurance premiums are going to go up. And right now, what's costing the insurance the most money are back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, all these musculoskeletal problems. So again, my humble opinion, now that it's costing these companies so much money, and they're turning the cost over to us, they're now already looking at ways to fight it. Mm. How can we fight these problems? Because it's no longer diabetes that's costing them a lot of money. It's no longer, and that's still, those things are still costing money. Now, we could argue diabetes leads to back pain and all these other things, but all these issues are now rising to the top. 
A 40-year-old with a total knee is costing them a lot of money because it ain't going to be this person's last. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you go out with back pain, you go out with back pain at 40 years old and you blame it on your job, well, then that's costing that company a lot of money, costs the insurance company a lot of money. Yeah. My point being that now that it's doing that, the microscope is on it. Yeah. And these insurance companies, these employers, they, all these groups are saying, we've got to do something. And I'd like to think our profession can be the something that they turn to. A good uh, exercise lifestyle actually causes better rest and recovery behaviors if you listen. Mm-hmm. That means if you start fitness and start eating more healthy fats, not protein, because none of us are bodybuilding right now, yeah. you actually start craving the avocado more than the bag of potato chips. You just didn't know it because you didn't try it for a week. Yeah. That's, and so there, I've always said that, that when you're overwhelmed, my sleep is broken, my activity's broken, my diet's horrible, which one do I start with? Well, start a little better on each one, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do, do three proactive things for each one and watch what happens. And they actually nurture each other. Better stress causes better recovery. Better recovery gives you an opportunity to stress your health self in a healthy way. And it's just bouncing back and forth yeah. in that stress recovery cycle. And the people who, who participate in that aren't operating at debt. Some of us wake up and sleep dead every day and we cure it with caffeine only to get a little bit further in debt by pennies, not thousands every day. Yeah. And one day you wake up and you got a spare tire and you're like, geez, I got to get this off before June. Well, <laughs> it took you a lot of Junes to put it on. <laughs> it's not, not going to come off that easy. I mean, we've yeah. all been there. We've all yeah. been there. You, you wake up and look in the mirror. That shit didn't happen last night. No. No. <laughs> Episode 61, Big League Development and Wellness with Dr. Rob Butler. And when you're one athletic trainer or one strength coach, and there's 28 guys in a room that are either in one, one of 19 parts of the stadium that helps us to best support. Cause the question that when we, when players check in or they have a discussion with us, it's not about not playing tonight. It's about what should you do differently between the time you check in and game time to optimize what you're going to do. And if you're feeling average, then, Hey, your routine for whatever you got planned, it probably works out. Okay. But if you didn't sleep real good last night, one of different reasons you're really sore this today, whatever, let's not do the same thing that you would have done on average. Player comes in, you ask him some questions, whatever, and you're basically trying to find out which, which bucket are you in today? 100%. Whichever bucket you're in today changes what that person needs to do. That applies in every scenario. So yeah. don't think that just because you're dealing with a major league player versus a 15-year-old kid, yeah. hey, how are you doing today? Yeah. Well, I'm not doing that great. Okay, yeah. that changes what you do. 100%. That's it. And, and you know, once you've taken the time or you have some veterans on that you've worked through, not even necessarily veterans, but a couple years in, they should be at a level of competency that now they go into a different, a different pattern and can sometimes lead this. The goal is to just consistently do something. Like I think at times we, we would find ourselves getting really creative with this lift or this lift or this lift. It's like intent, doing a, a strength conditioning program at the intent it's expected and with the quality that's expected, often enough to make the changes is the foundation. They only got so much time to recover. Yep. And they only got so much energy you can point at stress. Mm-hmm. 
please don't waste that. That's right. In our sort of movement mentality, we say mobility first. Mm -hmm. A lot of people screw that up. They think we're saying stretch first. We're not. We're saying if you've got a mobility bottleneck, do what changes that. Right. Right. Let mobility be your indicator. There may be a stability program. That, That's right. Okay. Same thing. If you are worried stress recovery is broken, I honestly think before you start messing with stress, just show me you can recover yep. first. Right. Yep. You got to show me we can get you back to baseline. And then I'll know what it takes to knock you off of that. But the true athletic development model that I'm sort of alluding to in the, some of the new writing I was doing is it's going to be pretty hard to have development without homeostasis. Hmm. That word balance comes back in and it seems to be the thing that we find most off when, when Lee and I got to consult on broken right. cases, there's sure. something's out of balance here. Episode 62. Are you overstressed or under recovered? I have a sauna in my home. I've seen a lot of sports teams. I've seen a lot of military use sauna. This is active recovery. This isn't just laying in a chair. And I'm not just talking about better sleep. I'm talking about there are so many different things you can do to reset your recovery. Wim Hof talked about the cold plunges. And we know there's huge physiological resets that we can have that aren't just based on a butt kick and boot camp exercise. You can have cold showers, you can have cold plunges, you can have saunas, you can have steam rooms, you can have deep tissue and, and, and massage work. Um, you can foam roll, but if it's not solving the problem in two months, it probably won't. But there are all these things we do for active recovery, but then how do you measure that? Because we know how to measure movement. And one of the things we've been thinking is, you don't need a separate measurement for recovery. If this is your movement baseline and I recover you better and you were poorly recovered, you'll actually have a few better movement signals. I think we pick up a lot of those on balance tests because what you were saying about inefficiency and fatigue and poor recovery is in athletics and, and with some of our military operators, there's something that we never talk about, but it is undermined every time you're poorly recovered or overstressed and that's your reaction time. And it means everything. And so when you start looking at the injuries in athletics, a lot more fourth quarter injuries are going on and we blame it on fatigue and stuff. But what's the fatigue doing? It's disrupting your movement thought and your movement expression because reaction time, compensation, poor mechanics, poor proprioception, right? Poor visual scanning, all this stuff comes together and it just starts eroding. And the more inefficient you are, the more it erodes. So, you know, we're using movement right now as both a signature for better recovery and um, better choices in exercise and stress. And it works the other way. You're poorly recovered. We're going to see it somewhere in your movement signature. So really, it doesn't matter which bucket you put yourself into, overstressed or under-recovered, right? As long as you have some way to measure where you are. Right. Now, whether that's a wearable or whether that's just checking your balance or checking your grip strength, or in our case, maybe it is checking a leg raise or even your toe touch, right? Yeah. If you can't touch your toes when you get up in the morning and you were able to last night, then you have a situation where you're either overstressed or under-recovered. And until you take action on that, then you need to maybe alter what you plan on doing as far as your workout is that day. It is, it is. And, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because when people say they're overstressed, 
most of them aren't saying I ran an ultra marathon or laid block today, <laughs> right? I, I'm not a, a brick mason. I mean, I haven't been doing labor all day. What they're talking about is everything from social media to relationships to work stress, you know, all that kind of stuff. My point is, we came from a long heritage of humanity that had about as much mental, emotional, psychological stress as it did physical stress. And a great way to work off the stress in your head is to use your body. <laughs> it just is. And, and if you match your stress levels, your physical, emotional, social, you end up dumping a lot of that aggregate tension that just accumulates over four days of doing the thing in the cubicle, whatever. And I want people to realize <clears throat> that even though you get that endorphin effect when you go do the boot camp in the park, that's not the kind of physical way you need to dump your stress. That's just another, how can I say, um, you're just stressing another system way more than it should. So a lot of the exercises we're coming to now that are what I would call a global corrective strategy, not a local. Cor a local corrective strategy, Lee, is doing the four things to, to you know, roll your calf and get your ankle mobility back. A global is this movement pattern shows me a better representation of your stress than any other. Like leg raise, toe touch, that is posterior chain tension. A bad push-up, bad rotary stability, you can't find your core, right? So there are all these signatures out there. I just got to figure out what's the lowest dose where I can unburden that thing and dump the inappropriate tension. Because we always want to make more tension. Not well, and, and I think the assumption, and I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. The assumption is your workout in our in our world of fitness performance, your workout is what's creating the stress. And you got to before I do another high end workout, I got to make sure I fully recovered. What's well, not always about the workout you just did. It could be other things in your life that's creating. And one example I like to talk about, in some of the core and one of the courses is. Way back when, when I was at the high school and when I was at the university working with athletes, mainly the university, is I would always see the first two weeks of the freshmen coming back, and never, not even freshmen, but mainly the freshmen, coming into the university, and now they're going to play football, volleyball, whatever. Common. First two weeks, hip flexor strains, groin strains. Common. Every year, no matter what. Freshmen, they're going to come in, complain about their hip flexors and groins. Now, what did I do? Did what every good athletic trainer does, throw them on some stem, do some stretching, put some ace wraps on them, throw some ice, done. I mean, that's you're talking back 10, 15 years ago. And, of course, they got better as, as the season went on. And then all the, what's the assumption of their problem? The assumption is, well, they're freshmen, they haven't trained like this, and blah, blah, blah. Never once did I even consider their 18-year-olds leaving home, not having their parents, not having their significant others, being thrown into a new environment, staying up too late, not hydrating, and of course not eating right. So I could now, knowing what I know, make a better argument. It had nothing to do with the practice and the training that we're doing. It probably had a lot more to do with the lifestyle being changed, their total environment being upended and again, you throw on top of that, now they're training and not maybe recovering. But there's a big piece that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk talking about recovery. Episode 63, Heal the Body and Stop Chasing Pain with Dr. Perry Nicholson. What's the minimum 
that even a healthy person would have to be upright and moving not to start getting a lymphatic bottleneck. I mean, most humans up until a couple hundred years ago were logging six miles a day yeah. just because it was Tuesday, not because it was walking day in the village, right? Yeah. Everybody's on their feet. You're not logging six miles a day if you're not on your feet nearly two-thirds of the day. People in a cubicle with a standing desk are supposed to have swollen feet at the end of the day, even if things are mostly normal because they're not getting the minimum effective dose of gravity, single-leg stance, and multi-pattern symmetrical execution. Here's the thing about limp. People always say, well, well what moves limp? I'm like, really good question. Two things move it primarily. Movement. And I go, what type? And I go, yes. Like, move more of yourself, more often, more ways, more environments. Just do something different than what you're doing now. Because if you do the same movement patterns all the time, you groove fluid flow based on those patterns. So you need to switch it up a little bit. That's why I like a lot of the stuff that you do. I like ground-based movements because nobody goes to the ground on purpose. They usually fall there. You had a really rough night out and you wake up there, right? And then you do your crawling pattern to the toilet and you get your core workout from heaving. Um, That's so people tell me. Uh, Props to Katie Bowman. We've heard her on the show and she's all about get out and roll around on the ground and just mash your T-spine. Mash your It's not about seeing how long you can plank. Make sure more than your hands and feet come in contact with the ground. And sometimes just rolling around on the ground. And I was doing this thing with Erwan LaCour where we were doing just forward rolls on grass. Literally, when you're tucking your head to one side and throwing one arm under you like you're doing a tactical forward roll where you're going to come up into half kneeling, it is unbelievable how much it felt natural on one side. I didn't even want to do it on the other side. It's like going off the 10-foot high dive. You just don't want to do it. Yeah. And I'm like, how much of this is me just being unfamiliar and how much of this is me like trying to block that? I've had a previous injury or something. And I've talked a lot of people through that. And they're all about, you know, foam rolling the T-spine. I need T-spine this. Man, if you're doing forward and backward rolls a little bit, playing around the ground, you just did your spinal mobility and you hit some pressure points that would have never otherwise gotten pressure on them. Those inverted positions are as healthy for your limp position as upright. But people today don't move. Right? We sit a lot and we slouch a lot and we get tension and tightness in the body. And most of your lymph node clusters, those many toilets, are located around the primary joints of your body that are supposed to move the most. Your upper neck, your shoulder, your, your abdomen, your groin, and your knee. Well, when you sit, you clamp down on every single one of them. Right? And then the other one is breathing particularly through the diaphragm, because the diaphragm, which you guys talk a lot about, increases intra-abdominal pressure. That's pressure in the abdomen, which moves your organs a lot. And holy cow, it's moving the cylinder where most of your lymphatics are, but pressure moves fluid. Yep. So everything in your body is supposed to be going. So I have people, like we said before about the lymphatics, you'll come in to see me and you've got swelling in the left leg. I can't just do some lymph work on your left leg. Because I need to see, okay, well, first of all, where has the left leg got a drain to? It's on a drain to the neck, the bottom of the neck at the collarbone, into the veins of the body, into the subclavian vein, and it drains to the left side of the neck. And then I'm like, okay, well, what if you got a block in your groin or your abdomen or behind your sternum or in your neck, and I start pushing fluid up from your leg? Where do you think it's going to go? Well, it's going to go right back down to your legs where it's going to go because it can't get past it. 
right? So it's just understanding where these blocks are or where these tension points are. The body wants to heal it because it's fighting for life in whichever way it can express itself. And I also see that sometimes the best definition of a better behavior or a better corrective or a better treatment is it's transferable to many other things, meaning I can see your improvement in other areas than I just work. And that's what, when I use the word weakest link, I'm not saying you got one. I'm saying in a chain, the minute we find that, we just change the entire status of the chain. In your body, if we find the choke point, the restriction, the whatever the congestion is, the, the bottleneck, we found a way because there are 16, 20 things dependent on that one bottleneck right. that all go, oh, glad that's over with. You know, you're allowed to have more than one problem <laughs> that you need to go after. And instead of one big thing, it might be a lot of little things that people are not putting together. And then we were talking about this morning. It's like, it's not only that you have all of them, but what order are you doing them in? So I, I like to think about a recipe, right? So if you're going to make a recipe to make a cake, you have all the different things, the ingredients that you need, and then you have dosages of those ingredients. Like it's a big difference if I put a teaspoon as opposed to a cup of sugar in the cake, even though it's sugar, one's going to taste really bad. So it's the dose. But what I notice in on a recipe, because uh, it's what we're trying to do, we're using all these therapies to try to help somebody make the cake. The cake is you getting better, Right. I haven't seen a recipe where they said, okay, take all of those things, put them into a giant bowl and mix them up in one shot. No, they had put three together over here and they whisk them up. They put three over here and they whisk them up. And then they put bucket A and bucket B together. And then they put that together. And you would think to yourself, why are they doing that? It's all the same ingredients. No, it's not because it's how they interacted with each other. They changed the reaction of stuff. That's that relationship. That's where it came from me is it wasn't so much what I was doing. That was important, but it came the order that I was doing something in and where I treated first, second, or third. So in my world, if I go back to the ankle, I never, I'm going to look at your ankle and touch it because you expect me to. But now I never treat your ankle first, ever, because I'm looking at the points above the ankle first. And if I, when I switch those orders around, and I started to work, number one, nervous system, vagus, number two, limp, number three, gut, number four, blood flow. I noticed that, holy cow, I changed the recipe around. That ankle got better in half the time. Episode 64, Inside the Business of Movement. Why is it called the business of movement? The business of movement is how do you use these different tactics together in a strategy? If, if you only know how to train people with a kettlebell, then sandbags, battling ropes, jump ropes, and Indian clubs, they're going to want to do that too. So my whole point is you don't have to fit everybody you see into one of the tactics we do. And so the one thing I wanted to do is show that the umbrella of thinking and systems when processing people's movement problem from rehab all the way to high performance, it's in there. But too many people pick a tactic they like, dry needling, kettlebells, whatever I like doing. Every situation doesn't fit that. My job is to render a movement diagnosis, prognosis, program, and outcomes. And so I use the tools almost in a cavalier way. I'm not committed to the SFMA more than the FMS. I pull that tool 
when it's appropriate. Well, and, and over the years, Greg, that's where the frustration has come in, and, and probably even for people listening, is they'll take a course or they'll do a movement screen. You know, for, for us, we kind of made the assumption people would, would take a, our entry-level seminar, which is talking about functional movement screening, our underlying philosophy, move well, move often, go through the principles, correct before you develop, all those things. We were giving them, giving you, and that's what we do in our level one course. We give you how to do a movement screen and more importantly, why. And you and I made the assumption and still make the assumption that if someone is sitting in our seminar, they can go through and learn the rules which which to screen someone and then take that information and take action. Exactly. Whereas therein lies the frustration with people. They don't know, and I'm, I'm not talking about everybody, but a lot of people, I mean, I, I get the emails, I get the feedback. Well, what do I do with this? How do I, how do I take action on this? Well, if the movement screen says you had a shoulder mobility problem, you're a professional. You should know what to do with that. When you say, you know, doing the movement screen and taking that information, you mentioned the word tactics, you mentioned the word strategies. Give us the breakdown between those two things. I think the, the SFMA, our Selective Functional Movement Assessment, is my movement dissection tactic when you stand there, look me in the eye and say, I've got pain, I've got these problems. Basically, you're in, you're in healthcare. So I'm, a tactic is a tool. Yes, it is. It is. FMS is more of our functional baseline. YBT is a tactic to really, really analyze balance. We've got a breathing screen that can easily let you know when you need to go deeper and do a breathing assessment and some breathing tests. Those are tactics. Yep. Talk about strategy. Strategy is, am I using the right tool? And then what did I change if I use that tool again to analyze you? So I just thin sliced you for uh, squatting. And I did something to change that movement pattern, whether it be ankle work or functional squatting work. If you don't have any impairments, we're going to work on the pattern as a whole. And if you do have impairments, we're going to try to work on those impairments. Either way, you're going to see the same test again. And if I don't change it, it's on me. It's not on you. Because if there's a reason this thing didn't work, I already got to know what it is. I don't start scrambling after it doesn't work trying to explain it. Well, maybe you didn't sleep well last night. So is that the strategy then? So let's use that example. So you got a squat problem. You've identified the impairments, ankle mobility. You work on your ankle mobility and it does not get better. Because you go back and retest, it's not better. What then? My first question is, did you truly find the weakest link? Okay. Okay. And if you did find the weakest link. Which is part of, part of my frustration is when people try to take a lot of what we've been doing over the years and tweak it. Well, I like you guys' movement screen, but I'm, I'm going to do it this way. I like it this way better. Well, based off of the strategies you're talking about, if you don't have a reliable measure, and if you just take it and tweak it and do, make it your own, which is fine. I'm, I'm never going to fault someone from doing that. My question is, is it reliable? Are you doing it the same? Are you following the same rules? Because that's the only way you can do what you just said, which is to make sure, is, are you working on the right thing? Well, well, if you're following the tools, if you're following the test, and you're following the rules of how you should do a test, and you know that test or tool or that tactic is a reliable way to test something, then you should be working on the right thing. Episode 65, What's Up with Paddleboard Fitness with Brody Welty. 
the pre-screening that you're talking about, prescribing a general wash to everybody on the planet, I wonder what type of impact that would have on people's health, people's longevity, you know, people's quality of life. You know, that goes back to my conversation about being a generalist. You know, what happens if we talk to people about sleep, hydration, breathing? What if, those, what if we just talk to about those three things? What kind of impact do you think we would have on people's general health and well-being? Or at least them becoming aware of, hey, this isn't good for me. This is good for me. I need to buy into my own health and wellness. Well, I honestly think most people, if they did that in an organized and objective way, okay? Right. Meaning the reason I say pre-screen is you don't get to tell me about your sleep. I get to ask right. you a few questions about your sleep. You don't get to tell me about your movement. I get to screen that and, uh, you know, and, and you don't get to tell me about your breathing. I get to test your breathing. But on the other side of that, there is a mind body connect or disconnect. Your subjective awareness doesn't align with what I just measured. That means the first adjustment we make isn't on your back. It's on your perspective. Right. Uh, right. I mean, you can't change people's behavior by recommending another behavior in place of it. You change people's behavior by changing their perspective or their perception, right? If you do those general lifestyle hygiene, the first thing you see when you're trying to sleep better is what's sleep hygiene all about. It's about all the right. don'ts, not all the do's, right? Yeah, it'd be great if we could all have the cooling mattress and the stuff like that. But right, the don'ts right. are, if you're watching TV at 10 o'clock, there's a good chance you're going to be watching TV at 1130. <laughs> right. So, yeah, if you're staring at your screen at 930, you're going to be staring at your screen at 1030. Exactly, exactly. So Scrolling, so, doing whatever. I honestly think that a lot of people would either find out they don't need musculoskeletal rehabilitation or they will go into rehabilitation far better. Just like if most physicians would consider a little bout of therapy or rehab or chiropractic prior to surgery, you may not avoid surgery, but you go into it already knowing the path that you're going to have right. to be on to make that surgery count. When I was the U.S. national coach, I had a lot of people come to me and say, hey, I want to train. I want to, And I would put them through little tests the tests weren't to see what type of athlete they were going to be. I was testing to see what if they were committed or not. Because I'm going to be investing a lot of my time into you. And if you're not willing to take it serious, then you're wasting both of our times. Slater Trout's a prime example. You know, Slater's, uh, he's kind of an Instagram model now, but that kid was the most committed kid I've ever seen. And, you know, he went through some of Mark's pr programs at Exos and I did a lot of his paddling, but he lived with me for six, for six weeks. I remember we had a talk about him, uh, but yeah. but yeah, I was I was very impressed by some of the things you were telling me about the level of dedication. And yeah. I mean, the guy could be a magazine model. He had every reason yeah. in the world to lay in a hammock and look pretty, and chose yeah. not to. And he's doing that now, which you know, all, <laughs> you know, we all move on. But if somebody you know, paid me to lay in a hammock and look pretty, I'd he, do it. Yeah, he slept in an air mattress in my house for six weeks. Okay, now you're committed. Now we can both put our full effort in. And, you know, maybe that's an extreme example, but maybe we need to have some of those same type of mentality of like, look, if you're not willing to adjust your sleep, you coming to see me as a, you know, as a personal trainer or a, a you know, physical therapist, if you're not willing to address your sleep, you're wasting your time. 
you know, you're, you're wasting my time. You know, we need to be a little bit more courageous of asking those questions and at least giving them direction. Like if you don't do X, Y, Z, you're not helping yourself. If you've been blessed by our creator with a really good metabolism, you're probably going to exploit your musculoskeletal system. And if you've been blessed with a great musculoskeletal system, Danny, you know, then you're going to have to learn to make your metabolic system better. So you can't cheat either one. You got to feed your metabolic system, good energy sources, but make sure that energy is efficient coming back out because a hundred percent of your energy is coming back out. 30% of it may be in sheer force, tissue tearing (laughs) and bad mechanics, but it's all coming out. In in my very first book, Athletic Body and Balance, I refer to those as energy leaks. The energy's coming out, but what part of your car leaking is good? None of it. And so, you know, you're breaking traction, you're you're not efficient. So you're either going to have a great movement screen and you're going to have to learn to take care of your metabolism better, rest, stress recovery, better nutritional sources. Or you're going to be blessed with this unbelievable grind. You're just looking for another marathon. But guess what? Tendonitis, arthritis, low back pain, hernia, tendon rupture. So, you know, a movement screen and a metabolic screen can tell you your weakest link, or you can just wait six months and life will tell you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's that's, I mean, that's why something like FMS is critical because as a professional, you want to, you want to hopefully mitigate that person from going through any type of injury. Episode 66, a clinician's guide to movement with Bernard Arnabosch. I still remember when I first entered the NFL, if you were a middle linebacker, here's your workout, right? Because we looked at risk as only the threat of the environment you play. So if you're a defensive middle linebacker, these are the threats that can maybe make that position, you know, knock you out of the game. So we train you for your threats, not your vulnerabilities. And a a really good book I I got through written by Stanley McChrystal was called Risk. And we're all, we've been talking risk management ever since we did this thing, because I don't want to use my talents to fix preventable things. I want to use my talents to fix unpreventable things. And therefore, if I want to fix preventable things, I must go upstream. I cannot be a musculoskeletal assessment guru. I must be a musculoskeletal screening guru because this means I can identify the problem before it causes harm. Because once it causes harm, I got to assign you a number. I got to call you a diagnosis, not your name. I got to call you an ACL, not Banat, right? And it gives me tunnel vision and conversations that I don't want to have yet because you're going to make it all about your quad and hamstring. And I want to make it about your hip, your core and your eating habits. Right. (laughs) And it's sometimes it's challenging to fit into that box where, you know, insurance companies have different demands, physicians, you know, only speak a certain language and, and, uh, you know, it, it is big picture and it is whole, whole person management. The mind-body connection is your thoughts and feelings align. And if you fill out a survey about your movement and then I screen your movement, which one is closer to the objective truth? 
your body will tell me things that your conscious mind's not aware of. So you can say, I got great balance. And then I can do a Y balance test. And your body will say, I don't got great balance. (laughs) Well, the very first part of therapy is making sure your mouth and brain and your single leg stance are in agreement about your balance. And it sounds a little humorous, but cops do this too when somebody goes, I'm not drunk. And they say, stand on one foot. And then they can't. And then the person will insist, but I'm not drunk, right? And, and so that's what a blind spot is. I can't even count anymore with my, with my fingers. A number of times a client has come to my office, we're doing the intake, and we never even get to the physical evaluation because you know we unravel so much of these speed bumps and garbage along the way where yeah. I'm like, you have no hope to thrive in the environment that you've created around yourself. We're not aware of our own blind spots professionally in our own practice, but personally, and the probably the last five years of my career has been taking some of the crap I say on stage and, and really rewashing it over my life and realizing how many of my musculoskeletal problems are preventable. Um, how much of my sleep has been broken forever, how much of my strength conditioning practices probably fit a 30-year-old's body more than a 56-year-old's body, and just literally learning how to, if these words are so important to say to others, you've got you to gotta recycle them through your life, not once, about every six months, because that's, that's what the mind-body connection is. Are your thoughts and feelings aligned, and are your actions and behaviors really pointed in the direction you want. That will do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.